0: Good morning. This morning we're honored to have with us a group of students from Pine Forest High School with their faculty members and chaperones. Uh, Welcome to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. We're glad you're here with us. Our state constitution says the courts shall be open. Uh, Our arguments are open to the public. We live stream them. Uh, So we are glad that you can be here with us in person. Uh, There's no better. Opportunity for civic education than uh, seeing it actually uh, live and in person. So we thank you for being here with us. Uh, our first case this morning is State versus Applewhite. We'll hear from the appellant.
1: Court. I'm Michael Casterline, the Monkham County Bar. I'm here on behalf of Robin Applewhite, the appellant in this matter. I'd like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. The uh, case we have before us today presents two issues. <laughs> One was raised by a dissent in the lower court, and the second was raised pursuant to the, this court's grant of a petition for discretionary review filed by our. On our behalf, I'll try to address both of those issues in turn. I think that the facts are adequately recited in the lower court's opinion. We have a uh, uh, rather disturbing, grim set of facts. Mr. Applewhite was convicted of 12 counts of human trafficking, among other things, and. Uh, Sentenced accordingly. The dissent raises an issue with respect to the statutory interpretation of GS 1443.11, which is the statute that penalizes and defines, in other parts, human trafficking. And uh, the dissent raises the issue that the, uh, because this, the legislature has not specifically or clearly articulated the unit of prosecution under the statute that the defendant should be convicted at most one count of human trafficking per victim based upon the indictments which were filed in this case. And the, the salient legal facts that relate to that are that in this case, each of there's several different victims, four different victims, but each of the indictments for each victim covers the same date range for that victim. So, so for example, with the the victim, J.O., the indictments cover the same date range. For M.F., the indictments cover the same date range. So there's no way to differentiate, based upon the indictments, what conduct or what particular acts are being um, charged, convicted with, with regard to those. It's an issue we raised in the lower court um, and was raised by Just, Judge Arrowwood in his dissent. What we have here is a statute that, that lists a number of verbs, entice, harbor, transport, or by any other means, um, subject someone or do those things with the purpose of um, subjecting someone, holding somebody in sexual servitude. And I think that that's the key that we have is we have a a statute that defines an act based upon the intent to do something and then talks about, uses this term of duration held in sexual servitude. But then the statute goes on to say that each instance of doing this is a separate and distinct defense. But what the statute doesn't really do is define what constitutes an instance of this. And that's the problem that I think Judge Arrowwood expresses and, and then recites a number of different cases where this court and the lower court have had to deal with interpreting statutes that similarly are ambiguous or not as specific as to the unit of prosecution. And that's what we have here. We have, in this particular case, we have the testimony of a number of different victims all testifying to an ongoing operation that went on for a couple of years across across North Carolina from Charlotte to Raleigh to Cumberland County to and also in Virginia, in Florida, in South Carolina and an ongoing operation where where Mr. Applewhite and the women that he was working with would travel around posting ads in back pages and then engaging in sex sexual activity for money with different people mr. Applewhite was would control the money dispense drugs provide housing provide transportation um, so this was an ongoing operation that went on for a number of a, a number of years but we have and I think by the statements of the prosecuting attorney in the Superior Court at the charge conference where the Judge Locke first raised this concern, we could have indicted hundreds of accounts. And and certainly there's instances based upon the evidence where if we take the state at its theory, it could have in fact convicted him of of innumerable counts of this. But they've somehow chosen four um, based upon these identical indictments and then at the point where the jury returns verdicts on those four offenses, on those undifferentiated indictment, he imposes consecutive sentences on those indictments. And what we have is we have this, um, we don't know from reading the statute what exactly constitutes an instance of human trafficking. If, if Mr. Applewhite provides transportation to a hotel to engage in a date with a client, and then from a hotel, is that two acts or is that one act? Um, and that's the concern raised by Judge Arrowwood below and the concern that we had before is that there's no way simply on this this evidence and these indictments and this statute to know where one act of human trafficking starts and another one ends. We just don't have a way to differentiate that. That's not really it, 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 it implicates issues of double jeopardy could he be in fact he was acquitted on a number of cases um, could he be tried again on the same indictment and i think if you take the state's theory that each instance and with they don't have to be specific in an indictment then potentially he could be and that's that's the problem that we have um, raised here what we and going through the analysis of the lower courts dissenting opinion, um, Judge Arrowwood talks about different times when our courts have had to deal with statutes that define things in increments, how we define the unit of prosecution. And here, we do have this, this language put in by the legislature, each instance is a separate offense and shall be distinct, but we don't have anything again, that defines um, when the instance begins and when it ends. And I, I think we've argued that it's much like a kidnapping statute, that it, the crime begins at the initial aspiration and ends when, the, when, the, when that period ends. And there's no, there's no um, here, there's no question, I think, that these women were, in this environment under the control of Mr. Applewhite for the entire duration of the period of time covered in the indictments, but there's nothing that that distinguishes one act from another, and this is the the concern initially raised by the trial court. Um, We believe that based upon that ambiguity or that, that lack of clarity in the statute that the statute should be construed strictly against the state, premised on the rule of lenity, and that the failure of, the, I think this is the language of Smith, which is recited in, I think, believe in the dissenting opinion, that the failure of the state to, to say with specificity what the unit of prosecution is, the statute should be strictly construed against the state. And what we're, not, we're, we're asking for here is that, based upon these indictments, that each trafficking count with regard to each victim should be one charge, one sentence, per victim, per that indictment. And that's the the position of the the dissenting opinion, and we think that that is um, well-reasoned and consistent with the, our case law in this state. Can,
2: can, I, the- can I ask you about, so just looking at the statute, to um, one possible interpretation, I wanna ask you whether it squares with what happened at the trial in this case, and in particular the representations that the prosecutor made in his closing argument to the jury about how they evaluate this statute and the offenses. But, but it, 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 is it a possible interpretation of this statute that um, 14-4311A, Um, when it says recruits, entices, harbors, transports, provides, patronizes, solicits, or obtains. That those are eight separate offenses. And so that um, when it, then it goes on in section C to say each violation of this section, that the violation pertains not to each person um, that is, that is the victim, but that if you recruit, that's one violation. If you entice, that's a second violation. If you harbor, that's a third violation. Is that, a, 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 is that what the legislature meant and intended? By well, the statute?
1: I think that that is a very, very conceivable that that's a possible interpretation. I think the, the footnote in the dissenting opinion where Judge Arrowwood talks about the drug statutes where we have, there's many different ways to violate 9095: 90, possess, manufacture, deliver, transport, and all of those. But what he points out is that when we do those things, we indict them separately. We put the verb in the indictment that corresponds to that. And I, and I think probably here, if we we would have, if we had one indictment that says he trafficked J.O. by enticing her. He trafficked J.O. by transporting her. We would have something different, but we don't have that.
2: Well, and let me ask you if that interpretation is consistent. This is from... um, the, the, it's in the record, but it's from the dissenting opinion below, um, re, reporting what the state argued to the jury. The state said, and here's the interesting thing, if five of you think that he transported her five times, and seven of you think that he enticed her five times, you don't have to agree. As long as each of you agree that he did each of the things, he did one of the things. You, we don't. Ha- he goes on to explain, you just don't have to prove that he transported and enticed and did all these things. Uh, we just have to prove one of these things, so so that that is not, in other words, the notion that each of these is a separate offense isn't consistent with what he told the jury, is it?
1: Well, I think that there is a problem with with that that he's representing that to the jury, and I think that that gets implicated. Although, you know, it's it's an issue frequently raised in in sex cases um, about jury unanimity, where you have a. An indictment that covers a, an interval of time, and you have generic testimony that something happened more times than was covered by the indictment. Or you know, State versus Lawrence, I think a case cited in the in the State's brief, is you have evidence of a number of distinct offenses and indictments that don't correspond necessarily to the number of times that you do have a problem with jury unanimity. And I think that that's potentially an issue raised here. We don't know what. But when you have an indictment that covers, I think, in some of these cases, 15 months of time, and you have testimony that the ads were placed in the back pages hundreds of times, um, you have no idea what's going on. You know, he is making the argument that, um, I, and I think that that's probably in, inconsistent with some of our notions of what a jury trial is supposed to be. But we have some case law that says that doesn't present a problem. And we didn't raise that as a jury unanimity issue. We raised it as an issue of well, how do you define? I mean, I think ultimately it's a problem of defining the unit of prosecution. Which
2: right. Is what, but I think really what I'm trying to get at is is how do we under how do we interpret the statute? Because that's our task here. And how do we understand? That the trial court and the and the prosecution, which is, he's the per, he's the person who drew up the indictments, um, how the prosecution understood it was implementing the statute, and and so that's why it seems to me significant what he argued to the jury that that his understanding was he wasn't indicting um, one one charge of transport and one charge of enticing. He, he, because otherwise, because the jury would have to find, all, all of them would have to find each of those offenses, correct?
1: Well, that's, yes, that's exactly what, you, you see the jury instruction, which is in the record, I think at page uh, 176 in the record, the instruction they get, They, in order to convict the trafficking, they must find that he enticed with the intent, one of the verbs, of uh, performing a sex act. Sexual activity in exchange for something of value. It's that simple. And so anything that any one of those verbs that, that he can demonstrate to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt was done, transport or by anything, there was a catch all, then he could establish it. And I think that, I mean, that's really what the key to why this is a case about statutory interpretation. It's the role of this court in supervising the lower courts to ensure that those statutes have meaning. And what we have here is something that, by virtue of a prosecutor saying, all an indictment has to do is provide notice, and a jury gets an instruction that has, you hear all kinds of evidence, hundreds of counts of evidence, and then you hear um, a jury instruction that says, well, if you could just pick anything out of here, you can convict. And that is far afield, and that's why it is so important that this court tell the legislature you need to specify the unit of prosecution in these cases so that we know. So that, it, uh, because if if you drew an indictment that says he transported J.O. to the roadway in on June 9th of 2015, Mr. Applewhite could say, no, I didn't do it that day. I wasn't there, I was in somewhere, somewhere else. He could defend that allegation. And if he was convicted of it, we'd know he was convicted of that offense. And if he was acquitted of it, we'd know he was acquitted of that offense. But we have an indictment that basically because of the permissive uh, nature of indictments are allowed in sex cases that covers months of time. The prosecutor's allowed to just put on um, evidence of hundreds of offenses and then just tell the jury, pick some. And that's, that's why it's a problem. And I suspect that when we look at this case, you have these undifferentiated indictments. This is a concern raised by Judge Locke in the charge conference. Um, how do we know? And, and the prosecutor makes his, I think this is all recited in the dissenting opinion below, his statements about, we could have indicted hundreds of accounts. Well, um, and again, that's, that's what I think the problem is and that's why the fact that that is true is with the concern being raised by Judge Arrowwood. Where does one act start, stop, and the next one begin? And I think that that's why we need to have some specificity about what the the unit of prosecution, and this court's done that before in cases. Would be the State versus Smith about uh, pornography or child pornography, it talks about, is it each magazine or each image? And this court has had to draw limits and set limits. the other cases cited there in the dissenting opinion, go through that analysis of of what does the court do when it's not clear what what the legislature intended as the unit of prosecution. And here, the thing that makes that kind of troubling is that the legislature has written a statute that doesn't say exactly what it means and then it has included this language that says each instance is separate if if there's no other questions on that topic i would like to talk briefly about the sentencing issue which is the issue we raised in our petition for discretionary review and this court granted and what i what i'd like to say about that is that, that we believe that the opinion in this case creates somewhat conflicting authority with, with the case of hanton and it's really about when you have a situation where the defendant in this case pro se doesn't stipulate to the prior record, and there's a foreign judgment, an out-of-state, here it was a federal firearm conviction, that's included on the gold sheet, sentencing worksheet, what the prosecution and what the court is obligated to do. And we're we're saying there's pretty clear procedure It says it's a question of law, not subject to stipulation, and there's not evidence here There's evidence that the state presented an exhibit that referenced the statute under which Mr. Applewhite had been convicted in federal court. It didn't reference the elements. The state, the judge did not check the box on the gold sheet um, indicating he'd compared the element. And even though there's a long sentencing hearing and a lot of discourse between Mr. Applewhite and the judge and the prosecution, there's no evidence that he really made that comparison. And the procedure, that procedure, is what has been provided for and established. Now, there are some cases that seem to say, well, if that's not done, but the court, even the Court of Appeals is able to determine what statute he'd been convicted of, the Court of Appeals can make that comparison and come up with those same elements. Well, that's, that's, and I guess under saying it's harmless then because this court can make that analysis, it's it's still, still saying that what happened in this case is not what has been dictated by uh, Hanton in other cases. And this is an important issue. This comes up time and time again from the lowest felonies um, throughout, if you have these out-of-stage convictions. And if we don't want the lower court, the superior courts that are sentencing people for felonies, we don't want this process to get sloppy, we need to ensure that it's done with some rigor. And, what, and that clearly didn't happen here. Mr. Applewhite didn't stipulate. And the troubling thing about the Court of Appeals opinion is that it seems to say, well, that he didn't object or he didn't provide anything. Well, he doesn't have to provide anything. When you when you plead not guilty, that doesn't mean you have to go forward and offer a defense. The state has the burden of proving. They passed up some uh, sentencing exhibits, which are part of the record here. I think that uh, the state had them transmitted to the court, but they don't really establish what the those Documents don't establish what the elements of the offense are, so that the court could have made that comparison. And it's clear that the court didn't really the state, the court just took it the state at their word, despite the absence of the stipulation. And uh, and then the court of appeals says, well, he conceded he didn't offer anything, and that's <laughs> what's most troubling because that does seem to shift the burden, contrary to what the statute says, away from the state where the legislature put it to a defendant to disprove it to get it down to the default classification of I. If there's no questions on that I'll reserve the remainder of my time.
0: Thank you counsel. We'll hear from the appellee.
3: May it please the court, my name is Amelia Mercedes Restucha, and I'm an as- Assistant Attorney General representing the state of North Carolina. Uh, there are two issues bef- uh, before the court on appeal today and as the uh, b- appellant was commenting first it's whether there's any ambiguity as to whether the General Assembly intended for each act of human trafficking to be charged as a separate offense or whether it be treated as a continuing offense there is not, subsection C of the statute could not be more clear on this issue. And second, whether the court erred in determining the defendant's prior record level. The evidence on record shows that there was no error and even if there was, there was no prejudice and it was harmless. The statute and the intent of the General Assembly are clear. The plain language of the statute, when considered as a whole and construed to not make any parts redundant or useless, require this court to hold that 14-4311 is not ambiguous. Each violation of human trafficking includes each act of enticing, each act of recruiting, each act of harboring, each act of transporting, each act of obtaining, or each act of providing a person by any means when it's done with the intent to hold the other person to be held in involuntary servitude or sexual servitude. Any other interpretation of this statute would give the perpetrators a perverse incentive and reward those who commit unfettered acts of human trafficking. It is unreasonable to interpret this statute to limit to to one count of human trafficking per victim. The General Assembly would never have intended that. And if it did, it would have been more clear in its drafting as opposed to directly, specifically stating that each violation shall constitute a separate offense and shall not merge with another offense.
4: Human human trafficking is, is commonly understood as a, a bigger scheme, right? Like there's usually, in like as in this case, multiple people involved, maybe brought through in multiple stages. Couldn't the legislature have been saying, "Don't merge these"? As you know, I'm I'm making my basement available to harbor these these women um, who are low income and lack resources. Couldn't the legislature have been saying, "It's not a scheme"? It's a each is a crime against a person, and don't don't merge it into an understanding of a big scheme. I think that that's right, and there there were two
3: defendants, uh, co-defendant in this case, um, but the, what the record shows and the testimony shows is that uh, the defendant really did take each act into uh, when interacting with these women, and there were times that they were free of his will, but he again acted and. Um, and got him them again under his control, primarily with the use of heroin, all of which, the except for one victim, um, were not heroin users before meeting uh, the defendant. Uh, he really, under, under the guise of other drugs, uh, hooked them on heroin, and then from that point on, had them under that control and would harbor them and transport them to uh,
4: various locations in order to protect uh, perform sex acts for money. So could the legislature have used Perfect different but perfectly redundant words in the statute just to ramp up the punishment Irrespective of the problems uh, under double jeopardy. I Don't think these words are redundant Is the state's position that they could have because that's sort of where I if I disagree with you and I think they are redundant or at least the statute doesn't provide me anything to understand where how recruiting is, indifferent than, is different than enticing. I mean, just picture, like in the, you, you point to the drug statute. I mean, if the legislature had used the word making and manufacturing, they just use manufacturing, but gosh, those two words are pretty cotermin, coterminous. Like, I think that would have raised a double jeopardy problem.
3: I, I think the facts in this case, when you hear them, um, Distinguish between the acts of enticing, the acts of recruiting, uh, harboring, you know, and transporting are, are somewhat different. But uh, you know, in, in one case, of a victim was at a hotel room, and the defendant you know dangled a bag of, of drugs out of his window, and enticed her to come to his car, uh, and then they engaged in a sexual act. From that point, he started talking to her about how he could she could join his team, um, re- recruiting her. Right, that's the second act. Um, and from there he he drove her to his his home provided her with narcotics for free for about a week Um, again she was not a heroin user before this Uh, once she was hooked on this as the victims explain and as we know um, the pull of this drug is much more intense than any other drug um, that's really out there and so uh, he would he harbored her in his home and woke her up in the middle of the night and you know she was required to perform the sex act and so I think um, the facts, I and mean, it's really for the jury to determine which facts fit each of these these, these acts. And um, they did that, and there was really no question from the jury that what they were
2: charged to do. Well, I, I want to understand. So, so first of all, just to be clear. He was sentenced to 240 to 312 years, correct? Yes. And that, and that, if we were to understand this statute. The way um, the defendant is suggesting—that is to say, each victim in this particular case—he would, st- would still be sentenced to something over a hundred years. That's what we're talking about, and so. If if what you are and and I think you bring up a really interesting point, which and I think we've also addressed this question more recently. In, and I, I apologize because I don't think this was cited in any of the briefs. But in State versus Do, when we were trying to decide uh, whether you can charge someone with a single assault or multiple assaults when there's a you know a, sort of a horrific period of time over which a, a victim is assaulted, and we and and there we talk about um, the the what we need to look at is whether or not there is some kind of distinct interruption and so as you were describing the facts here I, 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 think I, I think I understand that if that if he had a particular victim and was trafficking her she gets away she's she's gone not involved with him and then he later entices her again I would I, I, that I could understand as two separate violations of this statute but but it seems to me the indictments and, particul- and include and the verdict sheets don't give any specificity as to which, which parts of the of this conduct constitute which parts of the violation of the statute. And, and it seems to me entirely reasonable that that clause in the statute also refers to the fact that there are other crimes in addition to human trafficking, like kidnapping and you know uh, other crimes that he could be charged with, and so the fact that th- that this violation, the violation of the human trafficking statute, doesn't merge with kidnapping or sexual assault or other types of crimes, you know, uh, providing drugs, that's illegal, right? Like, there, there are multiple crimes he might have been committing, and subsection C just says, well, because they are all part of the human trafficking, it is still a separate offense, and he can be charged with the multiple crimes.
3: Right, and, I, and I, I do believe that the facts and the testimony shows that there was a break. Uh, with respect to victim AC, she was completely out of the, out of the defendant's control, living in Hope, um, in Fayetteville, or outside of Fayetteville, and he went, picked her up, offered her free heroin, and drove her back to Hope Mills in the house and, and left her there. And, um, you know, I, I really think the, the authority that the court look, needs to look at here is the block, you know, Blockburger v. U- U.S. where the Supreme Court really creates a test for separate and distinct offenses um, and the court found you know, no merit to the argument that the Narcotic Act was to be construed as only imposing a single punishment for a violation of the distinct requirements of the statute when accomplished by one and the same sale. Um, it's said there that the plain meaning of the provision is that each offense is subject to the penalty prescribed and if that be too harsh the remedy must be afforded by Act of Congress and not by judicial legislation under the guise of construction. And I think that that's what's happening here is that the, you know, the penalty may seem a little bit harsh, but if that is what the General Assembly intended to really be punitive in this, in this case. Um,
5: but, but you don't agree, you do not agree, I take it from your brief, that C is, is simply an anti-merger provision.
3: I, I don't, uh, because I think it, um, it's, it's quite telling that uh, it, the, the General Assembly doesn't often use the term separate offense. Uh, and so it, it is only found in about 17 sections of chapter 14, which are related to the criminal law, uh, where they specifically uh, explicitly state separate offense that it includes offenses like terrorism, sexual servitude, involuntary servitude, uh, five separate offenses related to the assault battery and uh, death of an unborn child. I think that they very, very intentionally used this language, um, especially when we take into consideration that it was enacted. Uh, excuse me. It was enacted. Uh, you know, the state. Excuse me. The um, the court cites the state v. White, which is our kidnapping statute, right, which talks about how. Um, that that is a continuing offense. White was decided in 1997, but our human trafficking statute was passed in 2006. Um, And that was the year after the court's decision in Howell, uh, which this court recently cited in in Connolly. And it, it, you know, arguably after this court picked apart the words of the child pornography statute, the General Assembly understood the importance of including its language of uh, choice. And it knew that without including subsection C that each violation of that could be charges um, charges uh, could be considered a continuing offense
5: well it just seems to me as just as a matter of statutory construction that uh, if if all the general assembly meant in c was to 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 say the the uh, violations of the human trafficking statute don't merge with with other offenses they could have done that without saying each violation constitutes a separate offense they could have just said each violation of this section shall not merge with any other defense. But so we, we have to give uh, meaning to the uh, phrase constitutes a separate offense, don't we?
3: I believe so. That, that's right. And I think, you know, in how the, uh, the Court of Appeals reasoned that when, when one statute uses the term any rather than a, it said using any, quote, rather than a failed to indicate a clear expression of its intent to punish separately and cumulatively for each and every obscene item. Um, again, it's notable here that HAL was determined the year before the human trafficking statute was enacted, and the statute very specifically used that term, each. And it, I don't believe that there's any other interpretation to mean that they were referring to the, each of the acts, um, those six action verbs that are found in subsection A. You know, dis- district attorneys are independent constitutional offers, officers. They're, they are expressly vested by our Constitution and by statute with the responsibility of prosecuting criminal actions uh, in the courts of their prosecutorial districts. Uh, it is true that the tr- prosecutor and the trial court had lengthy conversations regarding how to charge the defendant with human trafficking. Uh, that car- the, the conversation was arguably not a result of the ambiguity in the statute. Uh, it was a result of defendant's egregious behavior uh, related to tra- trafficking these women who he got high and controlled on substances, who he provided housing for, uh, transported across the state. It's always with the intent of uh, performing sexual acts. And to think that these women, uh, you know, the indictments, no different months, none of them knew each other, right? Um, so the day-to-day exploitation that they endured would just frankly be unjust for only w- for this court to interpret the statute to only allow one count per, per victim. Um the prosecutor has and was exercising prosecutorial selectivity in uh, only charging defendant 12, 17 counts, um, to which only 12 of, of which he was convicted. So that shows the jury was
2: able to dif- differentiate. Um, just, you know. just going back to the question of statutory interpretation, mm-hmm. um, help me understand why it is clear and unambiguous from the text of this statute that each violation in subsection C refers to, and I count eight, eight verbs, Um, um, and, you know, obviously our desire is to give full effect to the intent of the legislature. So I just want to understand why each violation, how we can know that each violation refers to each of those eight verbs and not to another person, particularly when In subsection B, they go on to say they differentiate the level of punishment based on the age of the person. So the violation, if you violate the section um, with with a a victim who's an adult, there's one penalty. If you violate the section with a person who's in a minor, it's a different penalty. And so why, why does each violation clearly and unambiguously refer to the verbs and not to the person, another person, each person? I think uh, the court can look to
3: uh, State v. Perry and State v. Pipkin, which talks about drug trafficking, and it it found that a person can be found guilty of possessing, manufacturing, and transporting the same contraband, even if it's the same sale. There's really no reason for this court to interpret the statute in any other way. If somebody can be found guilty of of multiple acts regarding drug contraband, there's no reason uh, for them not to be found guilty of multiple acts of human trafficking one one victim uh, you know the economic nature of these offenses is what really connects this type of criminal behavior to drug trafficking the defendant bragged about making over $40,000 a month on one victim uh, and was ordered to pay over $600,000 in restitution to the four victims uh, and so that you know the analogy with with drug trafficking um, I think it it is the new you know human trafficking is the new drug trafficking yeah, and and these women are being exploited day in and day out. When they're able to get away, they're lured back in uh, use, use it with the coercer first of, of heroin. And, uh, and there's, there's just frankly, there's no way the General Assembly could have intended that this only be limited to one count per victim. You know, whether a defendant's actions violate the elements of the statute are ultimately a matter of fact for the jury to determine. And as I mentioned, they did do that in this case. Um, there were 17 indictments, but the, the the jury acquitted the defendant of five counts of trafficking two victims and found sufficient evidence to reach unanimously um, its verdict with care and discernment uh, of 12 counts for, for each one. Um, if there are no further questions on the issue of, uh, statutory interpretation, I would just briefly speak on the sentencing issue. Um, and I think if this court looks at the sentencing exhibit in, uh, which was reviewed by the trial court, when making its determination of the prior record level, it'll find that there is no prejudice. Um, even if there was an error, it, it could arguably be interpreted to be in favor of the defendant the way that um, page 45 of the sentencing exhibit that is sealed and now um, with the court you know shows that there was a uh, federal fire a position of a federal firearm offense
6: um, right but is isn't the trial court required to compare the elements
3: uh, I think so but in you know state v Riley is uh, directly on point here where the, the Court of Appeals found that uh, the federal and the state felon in position of firearm statute are substantially similar and so you know that's a matter of, of law that this court can determine and uh, even if there was an error in that way it was again it was harmless and um, there's no prejudice and looking again at page 45 it can it shows that there was at least one conviction of of federal firearm by by possession of a federal of excuse me possession of a firearm by a felon Um, and this you know the court has already noted that that is substantially similar to our north carolina statute
6: would it be permissible for a trial court to take judicial notice so, on the criminal background check on a federal offense, it lists the uh, the federal statute. Uh, could a could a trial court take judicial notice of the, the
3: statute or the contents of the statute? I do think that would be sufficient. Yes.
5: But the statute says that the state uh, that the burden is on the state to prove by preponderance of the evidence that the you know offense is the out of state offense is substantially similar. Correct.
3: Yes. That's so if,
5: if we, aren't we, if we swoop in and, and, and do it ourselves, do the analysis ourselves, aren't we then relieving the state of a burden that the General Assembly chose to place upon the state?
3: I don't think so because I think the state is still holding its burden by submitting that sentencing exhibit that has a reference to the statute. I think that, that would suffice in meeting its burden by the preponderance of the evidence. I think that you know, this court should maintain the conviction. The prob-
5: the, I'm sorry, no, no, no. The, the issue that I have with that is you don't prove things at the appellate level. Right. You prove them at the trial level, right? right.
3: I, you know, I think that's right. And I think it, it was proven at the trial level you know, with the introduction of the exhibit. Um, and I think this court does have the authority to make, to make those findings here if it chooses to do so.
6: Isn't that the problem though with the saying that uh, substantial similarity is a question of law? I mean, they, you, you leave it open to appellate judges to sort of step in and tinker.
3: I, you know, I, well, I think once the case law is established, it, it is a, a, a quite a matter of law, and it has been established. No, I un- understand. A, yeah. That's
6: what we've said. It yeah. just seems that that has... Um, uh, it, substantial similarity seems more of a factual determination than, than a question of law, but you're right. We've said it.
3: And I, and I think that, that this court can rely on it, uh, and, it, and it is specifically for, for these two statutes, right? If there were other statutes that we were talking about there, and there's not case law on that, then it would be on the burden, uh, the burden would be on the state to establish that but because there is case law on that matter, uh, I think the court is okay in, in making, upholding the conviction. Um, as the Court of Appeals aptly notes, uh, the defendant and the dissent's interpretation of the statute disregards the words entice and harbor and it would re- result in perpetrators exploiting victims for multiple acts in multiple times and places, regardless of the length of time frame over which the crimes occurred, as long as the defendant's illegal actions uh, and control over the victim were continuous. Um, the evidence here shows that it was not continuous. There were, uh, there were breaks in the defendant's control over the, uh, over the victims and he kept on luring them back with, with free heroin, frankly. Um, given the evidence presented in this case, a statutory interpretation that allows a perpetrator only to be charged for one crime for each victim, regardless of the variety of illegal acts that they are subjected to be it being recruited, enticed, harbored, transported, provided, or obtained by any means. Um, again, always with the intent of holding in sexual servitude. It really cannot be what the General Assembly intended. Uh, we ask that this court uphold each of the 12 convictions of human trafficking and affirm the lower court's ruling. Um, and if there are no any so, further questions.
0: Yeah, before you sit down, what was the citation to the Court of Appeals case where you said they found that the federal uh, possession of a felony uh, statute was similar to the state?
3: I'm sorry, Your Honor, I do not have the, the citation, but it's State v. Riley, and I did, f- filed a memo of additional authority with the court um, on Monday that should have the direct citation. Sorry about that. If, if there are no further questions. The state rests on the record and it's brief. Thank you.
1: The uh, I I think I want to clarify something. I think that uh, the state has contended is that somehow we're, we're arguing the idea that he can only be convicted of one offense or charged with one offense per victim. I think that that's not true. I think based on these indictments, he can only be convicted of one offense per victim. I think that that's, that's essentially the problem here, is that uh, our, the way we framed the argument in our brief, our new brief, and I think this is expressed throughout the dissenting opinion, it's the combination of the statute with the indictment. There's no question at all that th- these that they could have charged him and convicted him with a number of counts per each victim and fully done that. They just would have had to use more specificity in the indictment so that we could differentiate one count from another. Now, going to the, again, the the very clear, they've said each act is a separate offense, and they said it shall not emerge with some other offense, which could be another crime. It could be even a a separate violation of this crime. The problem is, again, I think it goes to Justice Griggs' question about do these words overlap? Is he recruiting differently than enticing? Is waving the bag of drugs the enticement and then the discussion afterwards the recruitment? But the, the problem is that even beyond that, we have words like transport. Well, if they're on their way to the hotel and they stop and get out of the car for a while, then we have a new act of transportation when they get back in the car. When he provides housing for months at a time, is each day a separate offense? Um, those are some of these, these verbs, they have duration, and all of them have to be done with the intent of holding somebody, which again is a verb that had or a term that has duration for the purpose of holding somebody in sexual servitude. Again, something that seems to imply some duration to it, and that's that's why we have a hard time deciding what the act is. And we would think it was probably you know, if we had a drug possession case and the drugs were in somebody's pocket charging a separate offense every time they took their coat on and off, um, even if the legislature said each act is a separate offense, we'd say, well, there's no interruption there. And the state is kind of contending, well, there is an interruption here. That's not a continuing course of conduct. That's why multiple counts. Well, if that's true, indict it that way and allow the defendant to defend it that way And what we phrased our our statement based upon this statute and these indictments, one count per victim is appropriate. That's that's what we've said. And I think that the dissenting opinion is consistent with that analysis that when you don't specify the unit of prosecution, the the state of course can, the state's the master of their indictments, master of how they bring the charge before a jury and they can make it clear and avoid these problems. And the fact that they haven't done it here um, doesn't mean that we're saying that that you can only charge one act per victim. It's saying you have to you have to make some way to differentiate. That's exact concern raised by Judge Locke in the charge conference to the state, and the the concern raised in the dissenting opinion. And with with um, that, you, you eliminate the. Um, any redundancy in the statute by saying that you know th- these particular acts are different than those particular acts and you could, if, if the intent of the state is to vindicate and protect these people and show um, they're serious about prosecuting it, they can of course pursue the case that way. But the state seems to want to have it both ways to say well it's one thing, we'll just charge it four times. And, and that, I think, is the problem when the legislature doesn't clearly articulate what the level of prosecution is. And we would think um, you know, transportation, is it just one trip or is it both trips to and from the, the, the act where this occurred? Um, harboring, one night, two nights, how many nights do we have before we have harboring? So we think the, the what constitutes the act or the instance Matters and again, the, the language of Section C, where it says, "shall not merge um, with any other offense," and that's clearly the legislature indicating that there's they need to draw some distinctions here, whether with other crimes or even within this, within what the crimes are. So, that, I think that's what the ambiguity is within this.
5: And so, are are you? Are you demanding a degree of specificity in the human trafficking statute that we don't demand of other statutes? So for example, uh, the the statutory prohibition against um, transporting uh, illegal substances, uh, does that that provision uh, address whether the trip to or the trip from are separate? Or the crime of possession does the statute say uh, that each day is a separate
1: offense well the statute doesn't say that and I, i suppose if we had a case where somebody was charged with possessing the same bottle of pills based upon two identical indictments that said during february of 2024 he possessed the same pills 28 times or 29 times we would be making the argument that, the, that that's not what was intended by the legislature as far as the unit of prosecution. And, and that's, you know, we, we would have that if somebody was charged with speeding on one block and then speeding on the next block and speeding on the next block in a continuous unbroken series of events based upon the same charging instrument, we'd say that that's a problem. And I think that that's, that's kind of what we have here. We have the nine verbs and we have this vast period of time, and then we have evidence of innumerable counts within that, and we seem to be trying to prove this ongoing course of conduct, but then saying that it's particular enough to sentence him four times. Well, why only four? Why not 28? Why not 32? It, it, and that's, that's why we have an ambiguity in the failure of the legislature to specify the unit of prosecution despite the language that says, we're not gonna merge this with other offenses, is they haven't really said. And, and we have this evidence of drawn by the state of a long period of time.
5: Uh, I'm just uh, you know, wondering what the the implications of adopting your position could be for any number of other criminal statutes.
1: Well, I think that we have to you know, I think the law is there that an indictment has to be sp- somewhat specific as to what it's charging, and I suppose, you know, at the point that uh, Mr. Applewhite gets to pursuing federal habeas relief on this, probably be litigating it along the lines of double jeopardy because he's clearly been convicted of four offenses that the state can't tell you how one is any different than the other, um, other than there's a lot of evidence. And they've chosen four as a number. And the the, the problem is, is that the legislature can specify the unit of prosecution. And the and this prosecutor is the master of the indictment and can indict it. And the final thing I would just, going back to the sentencing issue for just a moment, I would say um, they didn't do it the way the statute is said. And I think that it's incumbent upon, this court has supervisory authority to direct that the superior courts, uh, do it the way they're supposed to do it, or just do it again. It, it's uh, important that we have process and adherence to the process.
6: Do you think uh, trial court can take judicial notice of the statute? Uh, again, in, in this situation, uh, the the evidence that was submitted by the state included
1: a statutory reference. Can the judge take judicial notice? Well, I of think that. if the judge, the judge maybe can do that if we're clear on what it is. You know, statutes change it's, it's uh, at times. And say, yeah, I'm, I'm taking judicial notice that in, you know, 1989 when he was convicted of this, the elements of this statute are so-and-so. But, but just saying I'm taking judicial notice of a federal statute without any evidence that he's been provided that or what the elements are. Right, um, but
6: here... In, in in the uh, submission by the state, it included uh, the conviction and the statutory reference. Correct. And and I'm just curious if if you believe that the trial court uh, can say that I'm taking judicial notice and that establishes the factual predicate from which the trial court
1: can say this is substantially similar. Well, I I, I don't know. I think it would depend a little more on the, the specific facts of what the statute is the duration of time since it's passed. How many? T- I mean, is, is he accurately doing it? And um, I think that that's important. Um, what what you know? The elements of statutes change over time, so I think that we would have to know a little bit more to understand. And here, the judge doesn't even go to the step of the you know. There's a form that they're supposed to fill out when they're entering the judgment or indicating that he's made that comparison, and they haven't done that in this case. So I think that there is a, a little bit of, of moving away from adherence to the statute.
0: Thank you, counsel. I believe your time's expired.
1: Thank you.